starting a new year, uh, teaching on how to study the Bible. You know, it's good to be reading the Bible, um, but it's good to go deeper as well, to really dig in deep, um, to really see what the text means. Now, the passage we're going to go through and study is a message um, I preach on before, but we're going to be teaching more on like how to study there, how we reach the conclusion. Because there's a lot of times there's Bible verses that um, we've read, maybe even ones that we've memorized in our life, that actually don't mean what we think it means or how we apply it. Uh, and so it's good to not just take one verse out, um, out of context. Now I understand, you know, that there's sometimes different ways where things maybe could be applied um, or are applicable. Um, like, you know, the Bible verse that talks about where God says, um, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways and stuff, I'll heal their land. Um, the direct, the proper interpretation of that is dealing with Israel, that um, their land would be healed. Now, do I believe God would honor that today with his people, those that are saved? Absolutely. But there's the direct interpretation, and yes, if we humble ourselves today, we see there's much more in Scripture that says, you know what, that God um, giveth grace to the humble. Um, um, and to those that repent. But it's important to still know, okay, this is what the Bible is talking about as it was written. What did it mean back then? But what, um, just for fun, what are some passages you could think of that are sometimes memorized, quoted, but aren't really what it's talking about? Anybody have anything to come to mind? Um, I, I had one just in my mind that I saw in a devotional. Um, and so, like, devotionals usually use inspiring verses, verses that encourage you. Um, um, and it was um, a verse that said, um, If thou bow down to me and worship me, I will give thee all the kingdoms. Um, but if you realize that's talking about Satan, talking about that when he's tempting Jesus, it's probably not what you want to put in a devotional. And stuff. But anybody else? Anybody that's just kind of come to mind? Verses that are often taken out of context. It's still a new year. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 There's some things, things that are good in general, maybe Proverbs, but maybe in ours in the Bible. Okay. Um, there's another one. So you could kind of see the principle is still in the Bible in another verse, but um, that um, I just lost it. It's the new year. I'm a new year older almost. So. <laughs> um, you go ahead while I try to remember. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's a big one. Judge not. And then um, right after that, 
statutes, it says, Beware of false prophets, you shall know them by their fruit. Uh, and it says, Get the bean out of thy knife, dig it to hell, get the bread, get the Mohawk brother. And one of the first we're going to study today, um, when you do this, that's one of the times people say, Oh, who are you to judge? So we'll go right in with what we're going to be studying. Um, see, the, the verse that I'm thinking of, or the lack of a verse, is, man, I know what verse I'm thinking of, the one that is in there, but I forget how to phrase it. They, um, oh yeah, that God won't give us more than we can handle. Okay, oftentimes we say God won't give us more than we can handle. Um, nowhere in the Bible does it say God will give us more than we can handle. He won't give people that were sawn asunder. Um, people that were stoned to death, um, lots of things that it's more than people can handle in that sense. But if God's with them, you know what? You know, you have Obadiah Holmes as he's being beaten with thorns, and he says, you know what, you have struck me as with roses, and, and so he says, I don't feel a thing while his body's tearing apart. Um, but um, we do have where the Bible does say that um, he, he won't allow a temptation that's more than we could bear. Um, and so that's where you kind of get a little bit of the principle, but not necessarily really the sad quote, God never gives us more than we can. Amen. Yeah, very good. Anybody else? Anybody else think of any verses that are sometimes taken out of context? Alright, well, we'll go and get right into the lesson. Also, be in prayer for me. I'm going to be preaching in Majesty Baptist Church in Vancouver, Washington tonight, and then heading straight to work right after that. So, be in prayer for that. It's going to be a tough one tonight. But, how to study the Bible? You know, you want to start with observing um, the text. Okay? Observe, observe it. Um, observe what's around it, and we're going to break into details of this. Um, but then also interpret, okay? You want to properly interpret the text. Um, the best way is to use other scripture that helps interpret it um, instead of our modern day way of thinking or culture's um, way of thinking. And then you want to bring application, okay? We'll start with one, Matthew 18, 20. Okay, we'll go ahead and turn there. Matthew 18, 20. Okay, we'll set you up right now, okay? So, okay, no, just be brave enough to enter it, okay? But Matthew 18, 20. says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Okay? So, we'll start with this. What does this verse mean to you? Okay? You guys, go ahead. I'm setting you up for failure, but it's okay. Okay? What does that verse mean? Common one? Solomon? So, um, 
wouldn't that be anything towards the people? So it could be like a game? People won't people stretch it that far, uh, but just uh, two or three gathered camps. Yeah, he's always there with us. So is he not there with you if you're alone in solitary confinement? Is there's not two or three people? Yeah. Oh, okay. So then we see by two or three. Okay, see the thing is, this is how we don't study the Bible and just saying, what does this mean to us? Um, you know, the small group Bible studies are good. You know what, sometimes you know, we get to have Bible discussions and say, you know what, this is what it means to me in the sense of this, how it's applying to me, but it's a dangerous way to get our main interpretation. You know, we just say, hey, you know what, okay, this is what the Bible means, and this is how it's been applied in my life lately. That would be fine, but we don't want to start our Bible study with, what does this verse mean to you, okay? It's not how we want to start. We don't want to just say, okay, this is what this verse means to me. We want to study it out, observe it. Um, this verse is often used as a sweet sentiment that Jesus is with us even when there are just two or three of us. Or as um, Brooke was mentioning, that, you know, when we have a church with um, two or three people, and um, we just got a few more than that today, you know, with the snow and everything. But um, um, that's a good question for me to get this mission. Does God always show up and answer prayer when he has an audience of more than one? Um, before we ever consider praying, do we need to find two or three more believers? Is that necessary for um, God to hear our prayer if he's only in the midst of us when there's two or three of us? Uh, that's a persecuted um, believer that is alone in solitary confinement, not have the presence of Jesus um, with them, since there's not two or three. And I don't know anyone that would say, yeah, that's what this verse means. But oftentimes it does, people do use it to mean that, you know what, I've heard people say this, you know what, my church is I go fishing with my buddies. You know, I can go fishing on Sunday morning, and there's two or three of us, and we worship, we praise God, while we catch fish. And so I don't need any organized church service and stuff. And so it's not a proper interpretation or application of the passage. Um, so, so first we want to observe. Okay? We want to look at it, observe its context, read the text in its scriptural context. So big orange box, observe. Okay? So read the text in the scriptural context. Now at the same time, I've already kind of went back and looked at what the broader context is. We'll start in verse 15. Um, and moreover, now I think it even before that, but the thought um, here starts here. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, 
tell it unto the church, but if we neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a human man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Tell seven times. Okay, now if you look at, um, okay, we'll get to verse 21 back with verse 15. Moreover, okay, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And then we see in verse 21, Peter asks, How many times should I forgive my brother? Okay? Okay? Perhaps um, he's thinking of this uh, based on some of the Jewish tradition was that you only need to forgive three times um, and then you're done because um, in the Old Testament, in this particular passage, it mentions, I don't remember what passage it was. But it talks about how God forgave them, and it says it three times. And, and so they go, okay, so three times is it. Well, here we see Jesus' answer is, I say not unto thee until seven, not, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which should take account of his servants, and when he had begun to reckon, the one was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. And so then it just kind of goes on. He gives this parable about one not um, one asking for forgiveness of the debt he owes is offered to him, but it's not he doesn't grant another debt that's owed to himself. Okay, so just save time. We're going to go ahead and skip the rest of that. But um, you would see we're seeing spread enough of the context here. But again, it's good to read, study the entire context as you see at the end. Uh, we'll go ahead and skip to verse 33. Should not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, how he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, and be from your heart. Forgive not everyone his brother, their trespasses. So again, you see in verse 35, it talks about trespass. In verse 15, it talks about that thy brother shall trespass against thee. Yeah, Peter asks about forgiveness. So what about these two or three that are gathered together in my name? Just maybe it has to deal with the context uh, found in here. And so some good questions to ask. So as we decipher this te text, what people and places are involved? Okay. Um, Asking who is speaking? Okay, who's speaking here? Okay, we see Jesus speaking. Okay, and so who is he speaking to? That's an important thing to know. Um, you know, is it something that's for today? Um, are we supposed to be going and building a giant boat and escape rain? Might not be a bad idea in Washington State, um, but <laughs> generally speaking, are we going to be doing that? Or was that a specific command for Noah for a particular 
time. Okay? So to know who he is speaking to is something that's important. So who is speaking? Who is he speaking to? Like I mentioned earlier, when Satan said, worship me and I'll give you all these kingdoms. Okay? Well, let's not go start worshiping Satan because we read in the devotional to go do that. Okay? Um, who is he speaking to? The disciples, apostles in that passage. Uh, what is the location of this discourse? Um, and you know what? Sometimes some of these things will have merit, or it'll be relative, or it'll be relatively important to what it is being taught. Means sometimes it may not have much to do with the interpretation. You know what Jesus is teaching? Um, could it, whether it's in Capernaum, which this passage is. Or if it's in Jerusalem, the teaching maybe would not be different. But, you know, having some context does um, help. Um, and, and, and as you read further into context, in chapter 17, verse 24, and when they were coming to Capernaum, they now received tribute money, came to Peter, and said, I'm not your master paying tribute. Okay? So the context is in Capernaum. This is what they're saying spot shortly after Jesus pays taxes with the with the coin from the fish mouth. Um, we see in eighteen one. It says at the same time came the disciples and to Jesus saying, "Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?" So the context of this trespass of thy brother shall trespass. And you see, it's shortly after. Um, when they ask Jesus, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So we have a little bit more context. But here we see, okay, Capernaum is where Jesus is teaching this message. Um, and this was basically where his home base was. Not that he necessarily had a home. You know, we see at times where he said, um, birds have nests, foxes have holes, but the son of man have nowhere to lay his head. But we do see Capernaum to be the primary base in it, one portion um, of his ministry. Um, Capernaum was considered a small fishing village in his time. No wonder this illustration we see with Peter, the fish, and the coin, um, that turned a fishing area. What it makes sense if it was in the middle of a desert where there was no water source. And as we read, Jesus got the coin from the fish mill. Um, it's also where Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. Um, it's where he healed the paralyzed man let down through the roof of a house Jesus was teaching at. But also of Capernaum, um, and, and this is where you're kind of bringing other verses in, kind of about the location. But in Matthew 11, verse 23, Jesus says, And thou Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell, for the mighty works which have been done in thee, had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom um, in the day of judgment than for thee. And so Jesus here is in the flesh in Capernaum, and he says, if I was in Sodom and Gomorrah, where mankind was wicked, vile, um, and had been given over to a reprobate mind, do those things which were inconvenient, homosexuality um, was commonplace, um, and, and so common then, and Jesus says, if I had been in the flesh then, they would have been repented. But here now, Jesus is in Capernaum, 
and their heart is so hardened and so old, they will not repent and turn to Christ. And so he says, you know, the judgment is going to be harsher for them if they had more light given to them. Okay? And so, kind of knowing the location kind of helps add a little bit of context. Um, what is the um, central theme of the passage? What is he speaking about? Okay? Let's read the passage again. Can we see in verse 15? Moreover, thy brother shall trespass against thee. Go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, Tell it unto the church, but if we neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a human man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them, for my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Okay, so reading some of the context, what do we see is going on here? see is talking about resolving conflict. Okay, a brother commits a fault toward another, resolving the conflict. How do you resolve the conflict? Do you go and talk to two or three? Not yet. You go to them first. You go and talk with them. You don't want to come and get the pastor right away to get involved. You go talk with them yourself. And then if you'll hear them, you know you may became thy brother. If they don't hear you, didn't give one or two others. And it's not with the purpose of gossip. It's not the purpose of condemnation of maybe this person did this, blah, blah, blah. No, it's to try to give restoration, trying to get things right, to resolve conflict. And then as we see, Jesus then says, if they still don't hear it, then there comes a point where you need to tell it unto the church, where you need to get the church involved in the issue. And you see, there's other principles we see applied in the church where the Bible says, um, like if there's a brother suing a brother, you know, he says that ought not to be. Why would we go in law amongst the unbelievers instead of the church, the house of God, to resolve disputes? And it says, call for the least esteem in the church. And let them judge. And why is it saying the least esteem in the church? You know, we got to be careful with that. You know, when you pick someone and then people get offended and go, Am I the least esteem in the church? Okay? And but when you look into the context, I'm about, you know what? Someone that's not really maybe in the leadership position, 
you know, someone that's going to be able to commonly see it, um, to be able to look at the matter, um, not so much the pastor that's going to take a side in the matter, but having someone in the church, having several in the church um, that don't really have any involvement in the particular situation. Um, so, talk about resolving conflict in this passage. So, there's two or three. So, we'll look at it more. What is the, uh, another thing to look at when we're studying? Okay. So, I'm mostly trying to teach you on how to study the Bible. Okay? It's not so much on the text we're studying right here, but both are going to get. You get two lessons in one. Okay? Um, what is the central theme of the entire book? It's a good thing to kind of look at. Um, this is where it could be useful to, helpful to use Bible handbooks. Um, a good conservative Bible-based handbook, not one that's just trying to um, split it apart or try to say there's all kinds of lyrics or whatever. But uh, a Bible handbook that's Christian-based. Um, they're not required to study the Bible, but it can be a quick overview and outline uh, that you look at and then you verify. Um, for example, here's from Wilmington's Bible Handbook. Matthew wrote some 20 years after Christ's death and resurrection. The Jewish nation as a whole had somewhere rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Matthew knew that they would soon face the destruction of their very national and religious life. Meanwhile, they endured the oppressive yoke of Rome with no relief in sight. Matthew took his pen in hand to reintroduce Jesus to the Jews and to show that he was truly what he claimed to be, the Messiah, King of Israel. He pointed to the future when Jesus would return to the earth and set up his kingdom and realize all the promises made to the patriarchs and Israel until that time. Jesus and followers should give themselves to making and baptizing disciples and teaching them the things that Jesus taught. Okay, so kind of getting a brief overview of what the book is about. Um, it's, it continues to go on in this Bible handbook, some unique features. Matthew is the only gospel containing the word church. Okay, there may be other words that come from similar root words, like assembly or things like that. But Matthew is the only one that contains the word church. Now, if I had not read this Bible handbook, that thought maybe would not have ever came to my mind. Probably wouldn't have even thought of that. Uh, now, could I figure that out without reading it? Sure. If I keep reading, 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 and then, oh, it might occur to me, possibly. Okay? Matthew is the most systematic gospel, grouping together similar things, such as discourses, parables, and miracles. And you kind of see them grouped in categories. Matthew emphasizes final rewards and punishments. The words judgment, hell, fire, hypocrite, or woe are found on almost every page. Okay? I may or may not have thought of that without reading the Bible handbook. Again, the Bible handbook is not necessary. All you really need is the Bible. And of course, understanding of the language that you're uh, reading the Bible with. Um, but here, it, it could be helpful. Uh, here's another chart that was found um, in the Bible handbook, the fourfold gospel account. And it kind of breaks down. Okay, Matthew was kind of more of a teacher. Mark was more like, a, a, refers to Jesus as a preacher. 
Luke is more of a historian himself, and so you kind of read, read details, um, but a historian would be interested in. And you see John writes, kind of looks more like it's from the appearance of a theologian. Um, you see different emphasis, okay? One, his sermons, another, his miracles, another, his parables, and another, his doctrines. Um, you look at the culture of the original readers, okay? Now, it's good for, and something for all cultures to read, okay? We're supposed to translate the Bible in every language there is. The Bible talks about publishing the Word of God among the nations. But you do see Matthew specifically was intended for the Jews, that Jesus is the king of the Jews. We see Mark is writing more of a Gentile audience, um, writing to the Romans, Luke to the Greeks, and we see John really to the world. You know what I tell them that? You know, God so loved the world. Uh, we see the geological records, okay? Matthew and Luke mention it. Mark and John don't, as far as of Christ. Um, being born. But we see okay, one, the king must have a genealogical record, Matt Mark's servant hates more, a perfect person should have one, Luke, um, and God has none as far as God himself, he's from the beginning. But we see, you know what, we see that in Matthew, okay, some people try and say, oh, there's a contradiction in the geological records. They'll try and say, look, this person's mentioned but in this gospel, this person's mentioned. But they don't, they fail to recognize that Matthew traces the regal line of David through the son of Solomon and leads to Joseph, the legal stepfather of Jesus. But Luke <coughs> writes the physical line of David through the son Nathan, and it leads to Mary, the physical mother of Jesus. And so, through both lines, Jesus comes through the legal, the royal line, and the physical, he said, is of the seed of David. And so, having these Bible handbooks can be helpful in showing some of these. If you're studying the Bible, consider cross-references um, and similar things elsewhere in Scripture. Some of you maybe have a study Bible where it'll show different verses related to that topic. Um, and sometimes it's not giving you all of them. You know, sometimes using the concordance. A concordance where you look up a word and, and then you look in the back and it'll show you the Greek, the root word meaning of it. And also show you other passages is, um, in the Bible. Um, looking at is... Um, the passage in both the Old and New Testament. Um, so you use handbooks to find this, you use concordances, you can use Bible software now, and you can kind of try to find different verses that are related to this theme. So let's do that with the passage we're looking at. Okay? I, I, of course, I've already done the research, so we're not going to have to start from scratch here, but Deuteronomy 17.6, we see similar language. In the mouth of two witnesses, or three witnesses, shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But in the mouth of one witness, he shall not be put to death. The hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people. So thou shalt put the evil 
away from with the model. Okay? So we see similar language as far as two or three in a passage we're reading about, as we talked about as far as being put to death, but we see a similarity of the two or three witnesses. Um, now, if there's only one witness, it does not mean the crime was not committed, but they did not want to have someone put to death if there was only one witness, because someone could be making it up. And so there needed to be two to three credible witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15, one witness shall not raise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin in any sin that he sinneth. At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. 1 Timothy 5, in the New Testament. So we saw some similar, a similar passage in the Old, now in the New. 1 Timothy 5, 19, against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Them that sin, rebuke before all, that others also may fear. And in the broader context here, it's talking about the pastoral leadership, um, them that labor well in the word, to honor them with double honor, um, and, but and if there's an accusation, okay, if there's an accusation against the elders in the church, okay, receive not it, don't believe it quickly, if there's only one accuser. But if there's two, three, or if there ends up being more, okay, then there may be an issue that needs to be investigated. Now, can two or three people all tell a lie as well? Yes, that's why you know it needs to be investigated. But you know what? It needs to be given some thought. Okay, there's two or three accusing it. And so it says, don't receive an accusation if it's just one person. But there's two or three consider and then they sin. You know what? Those that are guilty, you know of a disqualifying sin from the ministry, then cover it up. No, it doesn't say that. Okay? You deal with it. Okay? You know, sometimes churches fear that, okay, if they find out that their pastor was involved in this scandal, they try to hide it, um, try to maybe go, okay, maybe it'd be best if you don't serve here, but maybe go serve in the ministry somewhere else. And then it just causes more heartache in the next church. What we sometimes churches say, we just don't want our church to get a bad line um, in the public. But the problem is, the church is in a bad line when they cover up sin. When they try to hide it, when they just try to shovel it under the rug. Okay? It needs to be dealt with. Um, you know, a church in Bellingham, um, you know, and they had an issue where um, they had someone on staff. Um, you know, the pastor ended up being uneasy about some of the things that were going on. Um, the things weren't very specific. Um, he didn't really have any hard evidence, um, but just things that didn't look right as far as with his relationship with one of the teenagers in the church. Um, the pastor calls CPS and say, hey, what do I do here? And they would have said, if you don't have the hard evidence, um, you got to be careful because otherwise you're defaming their character if you don't have it. Maybe kind of talk with them, have them step down from being staff for other reasons, but you can't mention anything unless there's concrete evidence. 
Well, end up coming out later, there ended up being concrete evidence. And, and so they were able to deal with it, deal with it, report it to the authorities, they were involved, they had a journalist call and wanted to know what was going on. Um, he called the journalist back, let them know what was going on and what they're doing and how they reported to the authorities. And in the newspaper the next day, big headline was something totally different. Um, as far as the main headline, not about that church, but about something else that was a much minor offense, uh, was the headline. And then with the church, um, it was still in the newspaper, but kind of in a smaller spot. And it talked about how the church is cooperating with the authorities. Um, they're taking, um, um, they turn them in, and they, do, they look at it. And the um, reporter said to the pastor, you know, and thanks for calling back. Usually these kinds of cases, we never get calls back from. Um, but it's good to know that you're handling it, you're dealing with it in-house, but not only in-house. It's a criminal offense um, with a minor, and so you're dealing with it um, properly. And so they didn't get the big, bad coverage uh, as the main headline, and were actually defended in the part of the newspaper they were in. They were dealing with it, and they dealt with it properly, and so that protected the testimony of the church. You know, at first they could have been, or what they, their mindset could have been was, we have a bus ministry, if people find out about this, then we're going to lose bus tickets. But then, you know what, they allow predator to continue on, or to go on to another but they deal with it properly, and they didn't really lose people on the buses either. Their bus route actually grew as people in the public realized, okay, this one's crept through, but the church still went Okay? That's just a side note. That's nothing to do with the lesson. I guess it does have to do with the lesson. But okay, so see, when there's the two or three witnesses, and that's when you're able to deal with it. He that despised Moses' law without mercy, Died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Um, 2 Corinthians 12, 21. Unless when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and that I shall be well. Many which have sinned already, and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. This is the third time I am coming to you, and the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Okay? So these two or three witnesses are used. And that's what was used in the passage we're talking about, um, where it says, two or three are gathered together in my name. So even the two or three gathered in my name, isn't even talking about these two or three are the church by themselves, but it's these two or three are to tell it unto the larger body of the church as far as the assembly. Um, okay, so now we want to interpret the passage. We observe the context. Interpret the text in the scriptural context. Okay, for where there are two or three are gathered together in my name, the two or three in verses 20 must be the same as the two or three witnesses in verse 16. But if you will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And so we start bringing these contexts together. 
Um, you read, read a verse before 16 again. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. Okay, again, that's the um, context um, in there. The same in the culture and historical setting in which the text was written. written. Using a Bible background commentary can be helpful. And is it needed? No. You know what? You just read and study the scriptures. You know what? You'll get what you need. But it can be helpful at least to quickly learn things by examining the history of what's going on back then. Um, the IVP Bible background commentary says these verses may refer to the prayer of execration given in a Jewish excommunication, or they could represent prayers for the repentance and consequent forgiveness of the excommunicated person. Um, and it quotes or mentions First John five sixteen, which says, "If any man see his brother sin, the sin which is not unto death, he shall ask." shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death, I do not say that he shall pray for it. Okay, if someone sinned and they died, there's no point in continuing to pray for it. They're already dead. But if someone sinned and they didn't die, you know what, praying that they'll be given life, that they'll be given a chance to repent. Okay? In either case, it is of interest to know that the witnesses in the Old Testament were the first to be the first to execute the judgment of the court. Here they are the first to pray. Ten Jewish males was the minimum quorum to constitute a synagogue assembly. Okay? So this kind of gives it a little bit of historical context of what Jesus' readers or the hearers, listeners, may have already understood. And they're, 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 they're seeing it. So again, look at that. Is there any known archaeological evidence? That could be beneficial, helpful, um, not really to establish interpretation, but to kind of see as the neat evidence proof of it. Okay, you know, it used to be, for example, people would take um, King David and say he was just a legend. Um, he was a myth. And then all of a sudden, they found historical proof, stones, that said things like the, uh, the house of David um, and talked about King David. And so did I need that to prove my faith? No. But can that be helpful in understanding? Well, today or in the last 50 years, there's been this discovery about that. So that can be neat to see. Not necessary to find interpretation, but it just kind of shows more evidence of it. Now, what about of this passage? Um, there may be some type of archaeological evidence, not that I'm aware of regarding this passage, okay? Um, nowhere do I, except for you have the manuscript itself, okay? The Greek manuscript that was written, um, you have that kind of archaeological evidence. But as far as a particular history, not that I'm aware of. But again, some things um, you, you would, would have And there may be uh, maybe about like you talk about okay, the ten and it's a forum and a synagogue. There may be archaeological evidence um, of that. Um, another thing, examining key words with dictionaries. Okay, 
looking at key words. One of the words I would look at is witness. Okay? I like the Webster's 1828 dictionary because it's closer to the time um, when the King James was translated, the English words. Um, they're, they're, it's also the dictionary is going to be in more detail than often dictionaries today. It's like this big of a dictionary and it's pretty big. So, and it even quotes and uses scripture in it. And so I like using the 1828, but you could use a modern one. Uh, but understand that sometimes words change meaning over time. So having one that's a little bit older could be helpful. Uh, but it says about a witness. Testimony, attestation of a fact or event. That which furnishes evidence or proof. A person who knows or sees anything, one person knowing present is he was witness. He was an eyewitness. Okay, the Bible has on the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Okay, kind of looking at this, it's kind of looking at kind of important setting, two or three witnesses. Another um, key word, I think, would be church, especially since we found out that Matthew was the only place that church in the four Gospels, okay? Church is mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament, but in the four Gospels, Matthew's the only one that has the word translated as church. And so, it's a good thing we'll do that. Okay, so another problem, the concept of two or three Christians are gathered together anywhere equals the universal church concept, then that what church are these two or three people supposed to tell the issue to, so they are all running the church by themselves. Okay, now can we be a church of two or three people? Absolutely. But here we see in this context, the verse is not saying, teaching, just anywhere you are, two or three people. Now may you be part of the body of Christ, the church, and in that sense that you know Christ is the head, or his body, yes. But as far as here, we're seeing God, Jesus is dealing with a local assembly, okay? Dealing with the issue of your brother. If they don't get it fixed, bring one or two more. If they still don't hear it, then bring it to the local assembly. And so looking up church can be helpful. Ecclesia is the Greek word it comes from. It means a called out assembly, a visible gathering of people, called out to a specific place, for a specific purpose. For example, an automobile is an assembly of many various parts, but how absurd it, absurd it would be to think of it as being everywhere. It's a universal car, or as an invisible car. A church has many members, but is a local visible body. Now again, there is, in a sense, okay, that we as Christians, um, you know what, and our citizenship is already in heaven, the Bible says, and we are the body of Christ, Jesus is the head, okay? But that does not take away what Christ meant for the church to be on earth, is the local assembly. And so what are some important doctrinal themes, key points of theology from the passage? It's important, okay, as you mentioned earlier, resolving conflict, um, resolving conflict, and then as Brooke mentioned, you get deeper, not just resolving conflict in the personal and the family matter, but dealing with it in the church. How is Christ manifested through this passage? Very important to ask. 
Um, you know, at Spurgeon, um, I don't remember the exact quote, but he talks about when he preaches, he, every text he preaches, it doesn't matter what it is, he wants to see where it can preach Christ, where it can point to Christ. Okay, he taught, preached in Esther, doesn't mention the name God anywhere, but how can he preach Christ through it? And he can, you know, you see the providence of God in that, and um, using this to save the Jewish people, um, that the Jewish people need to be there for the seed of, of David to pass on, to be seed Jesus, and all that. That's all necessary, all needed. But so how is Christ manifested through this passage? Okay, this particular passage, you see where we are saying to you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Again I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. Okay? So how is Christ, how is God manifested in this passage? Well, we see that Christ is saying that is the church is exercising church discipline in the proper manner, he's there in the mix. Christ is there with the two or three that are gathered together, that are praying, that are seeking the repentance of the person, and that God supports the process of church discipline. That Jesus is there. Jesus is present that what has happened in earth, so may it happen in heaven, that that gets in accordance with God's will. You know, there's another passage, I believe it's in Mark 16, um, where it says, And whosoever sins ye shall remit, it shall be remitted of them. But whosoever sins ye shall retain, shall be retained unto them. The Catholic Church uses that passage to basically say that priests have the power to forgive sins. But that's not what the text is teaching when you look at the Bible overall. Man does not have the power to forgive sin. However, when you look at it in the context of church discipline, okay, that, okay, they're dealing with it, the two or three, then gets the church involved, that, you know what, they're, the person's continuing to sin, and so they're dealt with, they're to be as an outcast, they're not wanting to get them right. Um, can you imagine if the church in Bellingham they continue to say, yeah, just be here and be a good member in good standing, um, even though you violated the binding. Okay? No, that would be terrible. They needed to deal with it. And God's with it. Um, and it shall be mine, and so it will be retained to them and now there's repentance. Now just because there's repentance doesn't mean to restore back to leadership. That's another issue for another time. But there could be restoration, but there's still often consequences. But then also, um, this is they remitted. There's forgiveness, as we see Peter then ask, "How often should I forgive my brother?" Um, and she says, seven times seventy, four hundred ninety." The purpose isn't to go, "Okay, write this amount. I'm gonna quit forgiving." It's that okay, we need to be willing to forgive um, over and over. Okay, consult with commentaries and devotionals. Again, is it necessary? No. But can it be helpful? Yes. 
Uh, and also, don't go to these first. You can if you're really stuck, but primarily, I don't suggest going to commentaries first. Okay, you know, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit shall be your guide, the Holy Spirit's your teacher. So you read the scripture and ask the Spirit to give the understanding. But there are times where, okay, where you can solve commentaries, devotions, is for verification and checking if perhaps there are other details you're not aware of, but they're not your prime first source of prime for primary interpretation. And so, um, consult with the commentaries and the emotions on the way for that year twice. But um, we see in one um, um, commentary in here, uh, like one thing you're looking into is, is my interpretation way off? You may read it and go, I think this is what it means, but you might be way off. And if you see other general Christian-based commentaries, not ones that are just trying to be critical of the text, but ones that teach the Bible, you can see, okay, what's my interpretation of base? Or is the commentary off? Okay, commentaries can be wrong. Preachers can be wrong. Which commentate on the Bible, okay? So Jesus, but here's the commentary, it says Jesus also assures his people that he himself acts with them when they work to purify the church. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Not only does the Father confirm discipline when it is administered according to its work, but the Son acts his own divine confirmation. This verse is also frequently misinterpreted, though not with such serious error as the, in the misinterpretations of the two previous verses. To use this statement to claim the Lord's presence in a small worship service or prayer meeting does not fit the context of church discipline and the superfluous. Christ is always present with his people, even with a lone believer totally separated from fellow Christians by prison walls or by hundreds of miles. The context demands that the two or three are witnesses in the process of discipline. To ask or to do anything in God's name is not to utter his name, but to ask and work according to his divine will and character. For the witnesses to have gathered in his name is therefore for them to have faithfully performed their work of verifying the repentance or impenitence of a sinning brother or sister on the Lord's behalf. When a church gathers in the Lord's name and for his cause and glory, it must be engaged in self-purifying ministry under his power and authority and with his heavenly confirmation and partnership. Completely confirms what we've already studied in this passage. And so that's really is, okay, I'm probably not off base in studying this. Do we see in Scripture where there is a practical example of this follow? Well, we do see in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, um, and this is actually involving two local churches, um, but Paul and Barnabas confronted false teachers from the church in Jerusalem. Um, the false teachers would not hear them. They were saying, you must be circumcised to be saved. And, and so um, they would not hear Paul and Barnabas um, correcting them. The local church at Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, and the local church in Jerusalem, along with the apostles and other leaders, received them. 
it's a duplicate in there. Okay. Then the church in Antioch went to talk to the source by sending representatives to the church in Jerusalem regarding the controversy. And we see James makes his response specifically to the local church that um, he and the other elders were pastoring. And he says, trouble not then. Um, um, as far as Paul and Barnabas' ministry, um, you know what, that they recognized there were false teachers that came from them. Oh, just go on. Did you disconnect it over there? And there needs to be, it needs to be united. And 
Here we see it was afflicted of many. So that contrary wise now, he says, Yah, rather, you forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him, for to this end also did I write. And that was the purpose, okay? That I might know the proof of you, whether you be obedient in all things, to whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. So first he says you need to turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit might be saved, that they may come to repentance, and we see that he comes to repentance, there's remorse, and Paul says, okay, now we need to forgive him. Okay, we put him on church discipline together, spiritual accountability, they've been restored, we need to forgive them. And we see Jesus at seven times, seventy. Another verse that deals with it, wherever the man be overtaken in a fall, ye which are spiritual, restore such in one, in the spirit of weakness, consider thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Man, I thought my message was going to be short today. Good thing we didn't have so much music application, I might just read through this. Okay, so we've interpreted the passage, application, how can I apply this to my life? You know, when you know what is doing wrong, lovingly admonish him. They refuse to repay, and matters are not still unresolved. You bring another one or two with you, so you obey the passage. When your church has to go through the process of spiritual accountability, support the church in this decision. The goal is peace and restoration, not condemnation. That's why in Galatians it says, if any man be taken into fall, you wish their spiritual resources to one in the spirit of meekness. Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. And so, support the church. Humble yourselves if one comes to you about concerns. Okay? Someone comes to you, give it an air, listen to it. Um, is there an example for me to follow? Kind of similar to the same question, but one not to gossip. Okay? You try. You don't just go into or three to gossip. You first go into person, try to resolve. Um, but if they don't, and you get two or three involved, but you want to try to resolve conflict, don't just ignore it. Don't let your feelings against another just stew. Don't let there just be anger that continues to stew. Be willing to forgive. You know what? Maybe someone didn't know the affinity, or maybe they did, but you get a result. Is there a sin to avoid or an error to identify? So you want to look at when you're applying the scripts. Scripture in here to have humility if you're confronted with sin uh, To get things right so things don't have to go before the whole church um, Is there a promise to believe by faith that God is behind corrective discipline? We are believe that trust God in the process Is there a command to obey? Okay, and again application to resolve conflict not to stew in anger. Is there a challenge to face? Um, it makes us uneasy when we have to confront someone, but it is a challenge that we are to accomplish. You know, as a pastor, I hate dealing with conflict. Uh, but you know, that sometimes what has to be done. Sometimes people leave um, when that happens. Sometimes people leave because they know the pastor's maybe going to be talking with them, want to try it. Get it involved. 
Um, but you try. Makes things right between each other and in the body. Um, and you can stand behind the pastor, leadership in difficult circumstances such as church discipline, not make accusations of him being hard and mean, um, but hopes for the restoration of the one you're holding spiritually accountable. Okay? And I didn't just teach all this because we're preparing for anything, okay? Okay? Nothing like that. Okay? This is more how to study the Bible. And we took the verse that is often read out of context, but when we study and dig deeper, that we observe um, the context and then properly interpret it, and then we end up making an application. Okay? We don't start with application. We don't start with, what does this mean to me? But we observe, we interpret, we apply what's being said. Any questions? Do you have any questions? All right, God bless you. Dismissed.